0: Welcome to the Sales Development Podcast, your trusted resource for the latest strategies, tactics, and tips on running a high-performance sales development program. Sales development has grown to become a critical part of the success of high-growth companies, and we dive in each week on how to specifically make your program successful and accelerate your career advancement. Subscribe at iTunes, YouTube, and jump on the newsletter over at 10pound.com to make sure you never miss an episode.
1: Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. Thank you for jumping on this week. I'm very excited to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart and takes us up the funnel a little bit from the sales development focus that we're on so we can get a better understanding of where leads are coming from and and how we can integrate with marketing. Megan Hewer is principal of Hewer B2B, an independent consulting firm, and she was formerly VP of revenue, overseeing the analyst team at Serious Decisions, which is, we definitely need to dive into that. And beyond that, head of marketing at the account-based marketing software firm Engageo. So just An incredible background. Megan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom on the Sales Development Podcast.
0: Of course. It's my pleasure, David. Thanks for having me.
1: You know, you've had such an interesting background. How, before we get into marketing today, how did you get involved in marketing and, you know, to these positions of running the analyst team and whole marketing departments?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking. It's kind of an interesting journey. You know, all throughout my young life, I was convinced I was going to be a journalist. I loved working at the newspaper all through school, all through college. I was news editor of the Daily Paper at the University of Connecticut that went out to 20,000 people a day. There were 20 reporters on my team (laughs) in college, you know, and and I loved the work. But at a certain point, I realized by working with that team of reporters who were really good at going to all these, you know, administration meetings and all these things, and they just saw around corners in terms of, oh, this person said that in this meeting, and they must be thinking about changing this regulation or just seeing things that were not in my nature to pick up on. What I found is I loved writing. I loved storytelling. I loved a lot of things about journalism, but sort of the hardcore investigative piece from a negative angle was not my thing. What I loved was telling stories about people and telling stories about interesting things and interesting places and bringing attention to unusual elements of the world around us. That does not necessarily translate to a great paying job (laughs) post-college or any kind of a job even post-college. When I graduated, it was a bit of a recession. So I ended up taking a little bit of a different path and getting into initially doing just kind of traditional marketing. But very quickly realized that a lot of the skills that I had gained as an English major and also doing journalism for all those years, you know, sort of as a as a student journalist work really, really well in the world of consulting because you are interviewing people and pulling out observations and interesting findings. You're analyzing data. You're trying to tell a story back about how to fix something in a company or change something in a company. So very quickly, I ended up applying that in consulting roles at Gartner. And then I did end up going back to business school to get some professional qualifications for actually being able to be a consultant, like, you know, accounting, finance, all that sort of stuff. But I found then after that, I went back into consulting for a company called the Peppers and Rogers Group that did amazing strategic customer experience and customer value consulting. I spent some time at Metrics helping to deploy world-class customer loyalty surveys, net promoter score survey programs and customer experience enhancement programs. And then I also spent some time as a practitioner in marketing operations, marketing strategy, and ultimately very account-based marketing settings, kind of taking those same consulting skills to work, but applying them as almost like an internal consultant to helping solve marketing problems for different kinds of companies, small and large, from you know venture-backed startups to Fortune 250 kinds of companies. And ultimately, though, that led me back to saying, you know, those things that I really loved about consulting, solving problems and digging into understanding different businesses and how to help them perform better. That led me to serious decisions back when it was a small and fast growing company of 12 people back almost 12 years ago, or actually it would be about 12 years ago now, joined them and really helped to build up their amazing body of work and analyst team all around everything B2B everything that you need to be successful. And again, those same kinds of things that make you a good journalist, make you a good consultant, make you a good analyst, wanting to understand and break down problems into component parts and then show people how to use those frameworks and models and tested solutions because we were all practitioners before we were analysts at Sirius, how to go apply them in the real world. And that's what I did for more than 10 years until we built the company up to the point that it was acquired by Forrester. A couple of years ago, and an opportunity arose from there to go back to being a practitioner in the account based marketing world at Engageo. And, and I couldn't resist the opportunity to, to just jump back into getting my hands dirty as a marketer in this incredible market that we're in, where people are really shifting to account based models. And taking that and and applying all that I'd learned over all those years to saying, you know, how do we help build great tools for marketers? And of course, Engageo was acquired by Demandbase a few months back. And I took that opportunity to go and say, hey, you know what, I think I really just want to go back to my roots and back to consulting and back to helping companies really understand how to put marketing's toolkit to work for them, no matter what their business model is, be it services, technology, other areas. So That's a a circuitous description of a background, but it really just comes down to if you can write and you can think and you can ask good questions, you can do anything. That's
1: amazing. The skill of journalism is so applicable to what we do in marketing, it seems.
0: It is. And really, I mean, if you're a good marketer, you've got to be a good storyteller and you've got to be able to take pieces from all over the place and integrate them together into something that makes sense, but also something that speaks to people. And the best journalists can make you laugh, can make you cry, you know, to use that old saying, they laughed, I laughed, I cried, it became a part of me, but but that's what great storytelling, great journalism does, and that's what great marketing does. It gets your attention, and, and I love, you know, the shift that we're seeing in B2B now towards marketing that tells it like it is, that's plain spoken, that addresses people's problems in a clear and specific way, but that also brings a great deal of humanity and God forbid even humor, Right. I mean, we can all use a laugh right about now. And and I love seeing that B2B marketing is embracing its humanity and doing so in a way that allows us to be ourselves and to be human, to be funny, to be silly, but also to be real about the problems we have and the best ways to solve them. So I think it's a pretty exciting moment in B2B. And, and it is in part due to kind of taking some of those journalistic qualities to the work that we do.
1: It really is. And, and, Just in your experience, you've seen a lot of trends that have happened and, you know, especially being at the forefront of account-based marketing. So just for people who are new to this space and, or maybe have tried it and they're not really sure, you know, how to implement it, where do you see account-based marketing fitting in? What is it, you know, is it for small companies, big companies? Give us the lay of the land with account-based marketing.
0: Yeah. You know, I started doing account-based marketing probably oh gosh, I don't even know how, more years ago than I care to admit, decades at this point. But then it was kind of just called marketing because the companies that I worked in as a practitioner, but then also some of the consulting work I did always started with the idea that you have a defined universe of companies who can get value from what you're selling, that some people in the market are more likely to want to buy from you and more likely to get value when they do buy from you. So by beginning with saying who are those companies and then who are the people in them that I need to reach who are going to be part of making a decision to buy what I sell and then who's going to be part of deploying whatever it is that I sell or using what it is that I sell post-sale and what do they need? And if you start with that understanding... Then And if in your company you talk about things like product market fit and total addressable market and ideal customer profile, all of those things come from that basic idea. And that is an account-based model. It simply says there is a defined universe, however small or large it is, of companies who can get value from what it is I sell today. And that's who I need to reach. And that's how I'm going to start basically. The way that I talked about it years ago, and I think it still holds true, is it's a combination of a math problem and a personality test. The <laughs> math <God>. problem, right?
1: <laughs> I like that. Okay.
0: Yeah. So, so the math. Thank you. I think it helps. You know, because you kind of want to break it down to something that makes sense to people. And the math problem piece is simply that. You, again, you got to define universe. How many companies out there do you think are the right companies to sell to? And. As my wise boss at Serious Decisions said many years ago, the Fortune 500 is not a market segment. It's a list of companies. You need to say, now the Fortune 500 has such diversity in it, not all of them are going to get the same value from what you sell. So you want to go in and say, okay, what kinds of companies, what vertical markets, what sizes of companies, what characteristics of companies do I need to be in place? What things maybe do they need to be working on to get value from what I sell? And that very rapidly becomes the number of companies that you can sell to. So there's your math problem. Who in the market, literally, should I be selling to? The personality test is now what do those companies care about? What are they like? What do they need? What's hard for them? What's easy for them? Who in them do I need to engage? And and the personality test allows you to dig into the different buying centers that you could be selling to so maybe i can only sell to one maybe i can sell to five you know maybe i can sell the finance hr and marketing or maybe i can only sell to marketing for example depends but then you need to capture who in those buying centers do you need to talk to what are the different roles of people so your personas in effect And who are those folks? What do they care about? What do they need? What's hard for them? What's easy for them? What are trends in the vertical market that they're in? So that brings to life not just the demographic, firmographics of the companies, but the personality and the preferences of the people that you need to reach. And when you do that, then you can start to say, how do I tune my marketing to reach the right people in the right companies? with stuff they're likely to care about and to help my sellers do the same. That's at the heart of an account-based model. It starts with who. Got it, okay.
1: And so, you know, it's interesting because in practice, if they haven't worked with you or they haven't (laughs) worked with serious decisions, a lot of companies, there's sort of, a list of accounts that are in the database and you know there's some leads coming in from various demand gen programs and you know once a quarter the sales reps will sit down and say okay i think that these are the accounts that i want to go break into you know and then they they kind of have that list and they give it to the sdr and the sdr starts calling those companies and it's it's kind of disjointed because If someone's out there and they're like, okay, we've got this disjointed sort of Rube Goldberg machine, you know, (laughs) and Salesforce, and we've got Outreach and Engageo and all these things, where do they start at the beginning? Because it seems like if you say, okay, start with your accounts, get those organized, you get sort of a deer in the headlights, you know, because it's such a big problem that they have to solve. Where should they start?
0: That is such a typical problem. And it makes me sad because it doesn't have to be that way. And I feel for the reps and I really feel for the SDRs or BDRs. Actually, David, I'm going to ask you, what's the most popular acronym for sales development right now?
1: <laughs> that is, okay, how, how long you got? No, <laughs> I, I've, I've been pushing for SDR because if you say business development, then it's, it, it can be conflated with you know driving partnerships and affiliate programs and stuff like that, which is a completely different field. So let's go with SDR.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. I feel like that's a public service, you sharing that. So for our sales development reps, I really feel for them because they're on the front lines of trying to get into companies who may or may not have any interest in what they're talking about. And it's of no fault of theirs sometimes if things don't go the way they want it to. But there's two ways to think about this. One is if you want to do it, quote, the right way, the, you know, sort of the analyst approved way, yes, you would begin with the organization establishing the addressable market that they believe they could be pursuing, the practical part of that market that they can be engaging with based on people who really should be getting value from what they sell today, And then turning that into an ideal customer profile that then turns into an account list that then turns into a list of roles and hopefully contacts in those roles that gets to a seller to say, okay, here's who you need to engage in marketing. Here's who you need to engage because these are the people most likely to buy from us. And and you should even be layering in things like intent and other stuff to say, and some of these people are in market now and some of them are not. You know, that changes the way that you want to approach them. Of course, that's the ideal world and not always how it happens. Very often, a list of accounts is created somehow, perhaps with some understanding of of what an ideal customer could be, the types of, of accounts, company, you know, in terms of vertical markets, in terms of size of company and all those things. Whatever you have, though, you can sort of retrofit some of those good things to it. So say each of your reps has a top 100 accounts that they're supposed to get into, And you can go back and say, all right, well, at the very least, let's go in and say, maybe we can layer in some intent data and see which of those 100 accounts is actually showing any sign of interest in solutions in our category based on what they're searching for, as an example. And that's not ridiculously expensive or difficult to do, but it applies a little bit of a reality check to a laundry list of accounts. The other thing is just to narrow them down based on firmographics. Some companies are more likely to buy from you than others. And then, of course, some of those accounts may already be in market or may already be in funnel. So if you're already engaged with them versus you're not engaged with them at all, you can treat them differently. But finding some way to take that list and not treat all of them the same way because there are ways to differentiate even within a not very well-constructed account list that can help you help your reps and your SDRs focus on the accounts who are more likely to want to buy in the near term and then help marketing understand for the other accounts or, well, for all of the accounts, you, you shouldn't just stop at the top of the funnel, but in particular for accounts who are farther out kinds of prospects, you know, are there cost-effective and less labor-intensive ways than applying a sales resource to try and engage them in those early stages?
1: Got it. And so question for you is, i 've got a theory that the org chart is kind of set up not to necessarily support alignment across the go to market spectrum the way it's, it's like we inherited the org chart from the industrial era of you know having all these different silos of you've got the marketing team, the SDRs, the sales team, and customer success, but it's like do you see any innovation or you know, who's supposed to be in charge of this? Because in reality, when you go into organizations, a lot of times everyone's sort of operating in their own silo and they're not collaborating to the point where they can do something like this.
0: Oh, you're so right. That is an unfortunate thing. And I also think you're very right about the fact that the org chart came from a much earlier era where marketing wasn't a strategic component of the business. Now, interestingly, if you look in the B2C world, marketing is is a very strategic element of of the world over there. And they're almost like, you know, if you've got a brand manager, they're like a GM of a business, right? That's a big deal. Unfortunately, B2B has been a little bit slower to sort of think of marketing in that strategic sense. And marketers, you know, say a decade ago, kind of smartly shifted gears and said, you know what, if we're ever going to get a seat at the table, we've got to be able to prove that we bring some value. And the fact that we put on 15 dinners and produced a bunch of content's not going to do it. So we're going to need to link ourselves to pipeline and leads. So we went through this like really lead centric, demand centric period in B2B. And the good thing it did was it got marketing a seat at the table because especially when you had marketers who were super good at demand, you know, leaders who were really great at bringing those leads to the table, they showed a pretty significant contribution to revenue. And, you know, over the decade plus that I was at Serious Decisions, the thing that we, you know, tried to be a really strong voice in the market about was the idea of sales and marketing alignment. So getting those two functions that could be very siloed to work together and to be part of a revenue team. That began with an understanding in my world of accounts that you need to go after. But still, those silos persist, and there's still this kind of sense of competition almost between sales and marketing. Like, if marketing brings over a lead to sales, sales doesn't always want to accept it because they don't want to look like, well, I should have found that lead. Marketing didn't, you know, I don't want marketing to get credit for finding that lead. It's this sort of weird behavior that has led to some bad habits and just some old habits that are definitely dying hard, to use the old saying. What I love seeing is kind of this emergence of the concept of revenue operations and the idea that you've got sales ops, marketing ops, and customer ops that need to share a data foundation, need to have an integrated tech stack, and then need to be able to ideally, although this isn't necessarily part of the RevOps charter, but it could become, I think, a piece of that whole RevOps continuum, need to design a pre and post sale experience for customers that really matches their needs and preferences and brings to life the different things that each of those functions, sales, marketing, and customer bring to that journey. And with the shift to almost a totally digital journey right now, because of the pandemic and not being able to do in-person meetings and events the way we did, you've got this incredible opportunity to see rapid transformation and rapid alignment of those silos. If companies can break apart just what you said about that org chart and think differently about it and start with the customer lens, what do I need to make a good buying decision? What do I need to get value after I've bought? And if you start there and then say, what do you sales, marketing, customer success, and product bring to the table there? You've got to win.
1: That's so amazing that we get so focused internally that it's almost like the customer's like you know a side thought but it takes it all the way back to your experience with the customer journey right uh, trying to figure out how they feel you know pre and post and then align your company to that it seems
0: that's really it i mean and you know what are those books everything i needed to know i learned in kindergarten yeah you know this is everything i needed to know i learned from my customer Now, I leave some room in that, though. I think most of what you need to know, you learn from your customer. That said, we always have to leave space for innovation. I was watching a YouTube video, and it's a company called Winning by Design that does some really interesting sales training work. You may have seen some of their stuff, and and it was talking about the idea of asynchronous selling. And that's a pretty big leap, right? To say you actually don't have to have a direct conversation at the same time. You know, you're be be with a person at the same time to progress the sales cycle. You can have sort of these these meetings that occur and, and interactions that occur at different times. And what I thought was kind of fun about that was the founder who was presenting was basically saying there's a scene in Back to the Future that for those of us who've seen the movie, we may remember, which is you know, you've got Marty McFly who goes in and he tries to play rock and roll at this school dance. And he, first of all, kind of gets the audience going with stuff that's rock and roll that's a little <laughs> bit closer to the era that they're in. And then he goes off into like, I don't know, some kind of Van Halen-esque jam and everyone starts staring at him like he has eight heads, right? Like what, <laughs> what he says is he stops and he's like, ah, oh, you're not quite ready for that, huh? And he goes, but your kids are going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, have,
1: I know exactly that. That's like such a great scene, and
0: it's a great, great scene. And it's really kind of funny. It's like far enough, but not too far. And and when we go too far, like, but at the same time, the too far piece is where we have to continually be pushing ourselves and our products and our understanding of the customer experience, because that will become normal, and that will become the standard approach in some period of time from now. And I think what we're seeing is the pace of transformation and change is actually accelerating because of the nature of digital experiences being able to transform so quickly and change so quickly. So that's going to be kind of a big deal.
1: Definitely. And so if you're out there and you're saying, okay, we've been internally focused, we're trying to figure this out from our database and these, a lot of times for practical purposes, especially for SDRs, it's like, there's a name and a phone number and I'm supposed to call them, you know, and where would you start in thinking about more of the customer journey and how they feel, you know, hearing about you, and and then getting involved with your company, and then after you make the sale, how do you start that process? Do you do you, do you send a survey? Do you have to do like focus groups? Like where? How do you start to map out the customer journey?
0: It depends how in depth you want to be. I've seen this done you know, over months, I've seen it done in a period of hours. So you can do it a whole bunch of different ways. But generally speaking, if you bring together to begin with, first of all, whatever you have in terms of voice of the customer work, whether that's surveys that you already conduct, whether they're loyalty or satisfaction, or just, you know, whatever survey work you do. So that stuff, then any data that you have on how customers interact with you. So any knowledge you have of how they interact with your product, any knowledge you have of how they progress through your funnel and what they consume as they're going through your funnel, just any data you have on what customers actually do. And also your website, right? What stuff do they interact with? How do they interact? You can layer in third-party data to that too, if you want, but but just anything you have on what customers have said and what customers actually do. So that's a great starting point. And that, you know, you just use what you have. And then the second piece though, and, and especially if the first piece is a little bit limited, like you don't have a ton of great data that you, or, or it's hard to get to, or it's hard to analyze by bringing together members of your sales team, members of your marketing team, members of your customer success team, anybody who interacts with the customer on a regular basis, if you bring them together into a meeting room online i you can do it that way or you, you know if we ever get to go back to being in person it works well that way too but you get together and you start with you have a facilitator who starts with okay i just signed the contract what happens next and walk through and continually remind people to think about it but i'm the customer tell me what's happening to me what am i experiencing what am i doing what are you asking me to do or what am i what am i prompting to do on my own If I'm working with a service partner or a third party of some kind, what's happening with them, but just keeping going like through step by step by step, what happens after I buy from the moment I sign the contract, that's for your post-sale, but you can do the same thing for your pre-sale journey. Say, okay, somebody's going to make a decision. What happens? And between your seller, your marketer, and even your customer success person may have some insight into the kinds of things that are really important to these buyers, your finance person right? Or your legal person may know what's important to some members of that buying committee. All of those different folks who touch that customer can contribute to, from what they know about what happens to that customer, some picture of that journey. And you can capture that and then use that to start to plan out, well, gee, how well are we doing at each of these steps that the customer has to take? And if there are some places where, say, sales is kind of carrying the ball, but marketing's not helping, could marketing be helping? If there's a place in the post-sale where customer success is kind of flying blind and they aren't being given a lot of resources or content, so customers have a hard time taking that particular step in onboarding or getting a new module set up or whatever it could be, depending on your product, what could you do to be contributing to make their lives easier? But just getting the people together who touch the customer and asking them, put your customer hat on and think about what's happening you can do that. And then of course you can interview customers. That works too. But I'm trying to think about if you don't have a lot of time and don't have a lot of money, what can you do? These are all things that are time, but not a lot. doesn't have to be a lot and doesn't cost any additional money per se. It just takes the willingness to really put your customer hat on and think through that journey in a very detailed stepwise fashion.
1: Got it. And then, so I'm thinking the goals might have to change then for the team because they're thinking about How many people I talk to, how many calls I make, how many emails I send, like all this stuff that has nothing to do with anything that you're talking about with the customer journey. So should we be changing the goals of the team so everyone's more aligned or, well, it's hard to answer (laughs) because it's like, you know, it depends on the company. But I mean, it, it almost seems like we should change the goals of the whole team to map to customer satisfaction, you know, instead of like things that are important to us. I'm not sure what I'm t- trying to no, say. No, no,
0: I'm, I'm tracking with you. And I think the short answer is yes. I mean, I think there's a lot that's not productive, especially if I look at how marketing is gold. And to your point about SDRs as well, if they're gold on volume, that doesn't help. It's not about how much, it's about who and what happens next. And that. And the same thing with marketing, right? If you're getting rewarded on volume of leads, but they're useless or they go nowhere, then it doesn't matter. Like it's just not helping. So it really does go back to first of all, starting with who do I want to engage and what do I need them to do? And if that's pre-sale and I've got my focus on, you know, this set of accounts, what I want to be able to do is understand where they are in their journey and the most helpful, useful Thing I can bring to them at that point in it, and that's where we want to help our SDRs. It's you know, it, it's really about saying how do we help them know where that person is in their journey. And by the way, there is so much data out there between you know your own first party data as well as third party data that floats around in the market that you can get to tell you where that person is. I mean, equipping an SDR with that is really, really important because if they don't know, then they're, they're flying blind. They're, they're not able to make a smart choice because they don't have the data to make that. They're just guessing. And some people guess better than others, but that's, I mean, do you really want to do that to these folks? That's not fair. And it's really inefficient and expensive besides. So if you want to reduce your customer acquisition cost, you know, get that data and tune people to the place in the journey and then build things that help move that journey forward from that point you know, that's the short answer. <laughs>
1: yes. And being able to train the SDRs and the mm-hmm. team, you you mentioned a few times the enablement part, because a lot of times there's really no training at all. And so you you have somebody with very little experience, you know, in the business world, they might have just graduated from college, and now they're talking to somebody with 20 years of experience at a company and they don't know where that person is on the customer, you know, continuum. And they're just like, Hey, I have got this great product. Obviously they're going to get shut down, you know?
0: Well, and how disappointing is that, right? Because that person, that, that SDR with their limited experience isn't being set up to succeed. And that's not fair. Now, some people, you know, sort of naturally gravitate towards educating themselves. But that's an awfully risky assumption if I'm leading a team with a diverse group of people on it who are often earlier in their careers and don't have as much to draw on. So it's my opportunity as a leader of that team to really help them understand what homework should I do? And if I do find Such the answers point. to some of those yeah. questions, what should I do with it? And what are, you know, what are examples of people who've successfully broken through, you know, what's working? And one of the things that I loved from an analyst that I worked with at serious years ago is, is he had this idea, you know, if you help more of your, I hate to refer to them as this, but your B players, people who are close, but not over quota, let's call it, or within shouting distance of quota, look more like the people who are over quota, just by emulating their behavior and leveraging some of the same resources and assets that those players who are over quota do, then those people who are not over quota are going to start looking like they're over quota because they're following the playbook that is successful. And I think if you can help more of those folks who are close but not there yet do that, that's great for the business and great for them too, because then they've got a playbook and then they'll bring their own ideas and innovations to it, hopefully as well. But at least you're giving them a foundation that you know works and then helping them execute against that playbook and coaching them to the behaviors that are more likely to make them successful. And in return, the customer successful because they're getting the help they need to make a good choice.
1: It's a really interesting thing. And if folks are out there I think about this a lot. If you're a new SDR and you're trying to get into the industry, do you go to a startup who doesn't have any playbook and a lot of it's going to be on you or enter into like the Salesforce or LinkedIn, Oracle, you know, SDR machine where they have very smart people, you know, who have figured out a lot of this and they're going to plug you in and you're going to be really enabled. And I almost go to the side. I would take the job at the big established company for a few years, just so you can kind of see what it looks like. And then if you're interested, go out and do it yourself. But I love your point about that self-education is so critical because most companies are not going to have it set up like this for you. And I think it's why you've been successful in your consulting because they need you to come in and do this. I have a question in terrible segue, but so it feels like to that end that the there's a lot of information out there, like the content marketing field has exploded. So there's a lot of information for SDRs. There's a lot of information for SDR managers. And one of the things that I really liked about Serious Decisions was that they kind of took a lot of confusion and like content and all this confusion that was out there and made it into very clear frameworks that you could use and use those moving forward. And then if you needed help, you could contact an analyst and have someone help you more specifically. And I'm interested because you started there when they were very, at the beginning, and were very instrumental, it sounds like, in bringing them to the point where they were a successful company. Do you think that that business model still works today in the way that content is distributed? There's so much free content, but it seems like we we really still need a serious decisions, you know, to help us guide what's good content and what's fluff, and what are some simple frameworks that we could use at any company? Do you think that that's still a valid, you know, business model, or has it changed?
0: That's A challenging question because I think the short answer is yes, it has changed. But at the same time, it is still a good business model with some caveats. You are 100% correct when you say that there is a lot of content out there. And you know what? There's a lot of really good content out there. One of the things I said to my team at Sirius very often was, our competition isn't other analyst firms. Our competition is free. There is so much in the market that you can get for free that whatever we produced had to be better and more meaningful and actionable than what they could get for free from others or the combination of what we created plus the ability to have an analyst act as sort of your personal coach to make use of it was what had to be worth more than what's out there for free, right? And I think that's still the case. Any information business has to realize that whatever they're producing had better you know, stand out considerably and be worth money compared to what people can get for free, or they're not going to be in business very long. It's just not going to work anymore. So that's one thing. But I think the other piece of it, the thing that helped us at Serious Decisions, although interestingly, I think we sort of got lumped in with other analysts on this one later on, was We only hired practitioners. So all of the analysts who were on my team had done the jobs that they were advising about. It's not like we hired people who'd only looked at it from an academic perspective or people who didn't have a lot of experience as practitioners, but who could do great research. We didn't hire that way. We hired people who'd done the job, who now wanted to shift over to coaching rather than doing That's why I think we were able to produce frameworks and models that people could really use because they were created by people who had done the work. So they were saying, what's the best of what we're learning from all the different companies that we talk to out there about what's successful for them? What's the best of what we know about what worked when we did it ourselves? And what are some new things and new ideas that together as an analyst team with all those different inputs, we can come up to bring, come up with to, to bring that innovation. And that's the part I mentioned about kind of the what's next, like the things your kids are going to love. You've always got to leave room for that in an analyst firm too, of, of anticipating where the market can and should go, as opposed to only reflecting back today's best practices. So if you're able to do that, that's the kind of content that's not out there for free is that combination of really sort of detailed, heavy how-to plus forward-looking information that shows you where the market will go and how to prepare for the future now when maybe you don't have time in your day-to-day to to come up with what you think that future is going to be. There's still potential there, but I also think that idea of having a coach to help you through it and answer your questions and apply it to your world, that's what people continue to tell us was really meaningful at serious. Was, yeah, the content's good, but I really like the analysts because they help me bring it home to my job, my day to day, and my business. You know, there's potential there, but I am seeing too that. A lot of times, folks do like a consulting model because then you've got somebody who's literally doing that work for you, as opposed to showing you how to do it. And that's, you know, that's kind of an interesting nuance in the market now, too. Got it. Well, it sounds really fun.
1: I mean, (laughs) I'm sure that there was a lot (laughs) of headaches and stuff, which within a job, right? But I mean, wow, you were there for a long time, and it sounds the way that you. I want to (laughs) work for you. It sounds like you really brought a lot of passion to the job and up-leveled the profession. So that sounds really interesting. I don't hear a lot of good things about working at, you know, consulting, like your traditional big four, you know, type of consulting firms. It seems like it's kind of a burnout job for, you know, young MBAs who do it for a few years and then just run out and do something else. So anyways. (laughs)
0: Well, and you know what, to be fair, I I was one of those and it is that kind of a job. Yeah. You can't replicate the experience you get basically getting dropped into business situations where you're punching way above your weight in terms of the work that you're doing and the access that you have to strategic decisions within really interesting businesses. So that's kind of cool about it. But what you give up in return is, oh, I don't know, your entire personal life. Right. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't last. I don't know. I liked my husband. I decided I wanted to go have a life, but I loved the work. And the thing that's kind of cool now is since everybody's essentially grounded, you can't. Ha- you don't have to fly around. You can do really interesting strategic work without having to, you know, show up at somebody else's office five days a week for months on end.
1: Yes, there definitely, when history is written, there'll be a lot of great things about this situation that we're in. I think it's easy to get down the negative, you know, rat hole, <laughs> but I'm all for what you just said, because it really expands your reach. And it's exciting when you think about digital transformation, you know, and everything that they got pushed forward because of this awful situation.
0: Oh, our best days are ahead of us for sure. We are just seeing the beginning of what businesses can do to rethink how to be wildly successful with a product that solves customer needs. I love the whole product-led growth movement for that with really thinking about the post-sale customer journey and how to make sure folks get value. Because right now, if you can't grow at the very least, you need to keep the customers you have. So showing them a lot of love is a very important and meaningful shift that companies are making. And then the third piece is also really thinking about how to make sure that your employees are engaged and excited and, you know, to use your word, passionate. You don't build a great business with people who are like, eh, whatever, I'm here today, I'll be somewhere else tomorrow. You want people who really care about the mission of the business that you're in and the customers that you have in making them successful. Even if they're not going to be there forever, the time that they are, how can you help make sure that they feel respected and supported and inspired to do good work, no matter what that work is. And, and I think this is a moment where we've had to be much more mindful of those kinds of things. And then you know the last piece is of course, the complete rethink of what it, of what the customer and the buyer and customer journeys are and how they need to get delivered and that digital transformation piece. Those are all pretty cool things. and the fact that we've had to accelerate the way we think about them and make changes in them, I think is also pretty exciting. Our collective hand has been forced but I feel like it's been forced in a good direction and a very customer and employee centric one. And that's only going to lead to great things in B2B.
1: Oh my gosh, this is exciting. And you could do the whole thing in your pajamas. That's, that's. Well, yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean, what's better than that? (laughs) I mean, come on people.
1: But it's just, I love the way that you put those so clearly and you know, I can tell that in working with serious decisions that your hand has been in a lot of those frameworks and models because it's very clear, it's actionable. And this is what you 're doing now with your firm, so okay after i I want to hire you for <laughs> sure, if I can afford you, but if people i mean this is the kind of work that you 're doing now, right, so how do people get involved with you if you 've got spots open for them
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and this is one of those like be careful what you wish for you know i 'm starting on kind of a limited basis working with some great folks who needed help with some particular aspects of their marketing strategy and execution and thinking about, you know, the best ways to deploy marketing's toolkit to help their businesses grow and companies of different sizes too, which I love, you know, very early stage, kind of mid stage, later stage, all good stuff. And really just trying to help them think about the potential for marketing to help their businesses grow faster and stand out in the market. And that's been super fun haven't been like going out there and, you know, doing a ton of advertising or big announcements <laughs> about what I'm doing. It's, it's kind of like starting to see what my own product market fit is and where, where there's a need. And I had some inklings of that coming out of Sirius and coming out of Engageo, but starting to really crystallize where I think there's some opportunity, but right now, you know, if folks are, are looking for help or just want a point of view or a connection, I think that's one of the biggest things I've been doing over the last few months is simply connecting Great opportunities with great people and just helping to make sure, you know, everybody knows the resources that are available to them. And oftentimes it's not me, it's somebody else, but I'm more than happy to make that connection because there's so many really great, smart people out there who can help and companies looking for help. So, Hey, me and a little bit of a matchmaker is all good. (laughs) But go. that said, hey, I'm on LinkedIn. If you want to find me, that's probably the fastest and easiest place to go. Feel free to send me a note and I'm happy to chat.
1: Yes. I mean, this is so valuable. That's something that the computers haven't figured out quite how to replicate, <laughs> right? It is being that that connector because you can just add context and help people to get what they need done, whether it's you or one of your many connections. So I know I, for one, learned a ton. I definitely, we need to do this again because I feel like we just scratched the surface. But Meg, thank you so much for coming on the Sales Development Podcast and sharing your wisdom with us.
0: Oh, David, thank you so much. And it's great that you do this. And I know you've got, you know, more than 100 episodes. And I think it's really cool that you're bringing value to this really essential audience within B2B. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Okay, we'll see you on
1: LinkedIn. And thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the sales development podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development with your host, David Delaney. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.